You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Today's episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. Happy Thursday to you. We're doing herd mentality today. The episode each week where you take control of the discussion by submitting your bills, questions, takes, whatever you have. And I respond to it here on the podcast. So let's get started. First one comes from Greg who says, with the day two depth of the cornerback class and the lack of elite edge talent in the 2021 draft, could the Bills' best first-round pick be a trade for an edge rusher? I can't think of any off the top of my head that are on the active trade market, but could you see any potential fits around the league as someone who might not be openly available but could be pried away for a first-round pick? So I think the name is Daniil Hunter from the Minnesota Vikings. If you're looking for the trade candidate, a guy that has expressed that he'd like to be traded, coming off of a challenging situation with a back injury that forced him to miss all of last year. And so you'd have to give up considerable assets to get him. You have to pay him, and you're also taking a gamble with his injury. So that's the name that makes sense. For me, though... I don't think this is a good idea for the Bills. I recognize the value of adding a dynamic pass rusher, an established pass rusher. Right? That, that certainly moves the needle. That matters. However, I think what the Bills need is more economic options on the roster. We talked about this a bit yesterday as we dug through Brandon Bean's comments from his pre-draft press conference, and you could tell he's in tune with this as well. And so... I think the Bills would be better off taking a swing at 30 on an edge rusher or obviously in the second or third round than giving up that opportunity for getting a good player at a cheap deal for a player that you're going to have to pay a bunch of money to. I think those dynamics really play into this and make me prefer that they don't do something like this. Last year, it made sense. Go get the proven number one wide receiver. Give up your first round pick. You have the the salary cap space to absorb that contract. I think it's different this year. Bart says, if you had to pick four names you think could be a Buffalo Bill at number 30, which names would you pick? All right, so these are predictively four different names that I think could realistically be in play for the Bills at 30. Some of it is based on things I've heard and sources and what they've told me about the Bills' interest. Some of it is just feel. So here's the four names for you. Wide receiver Elijah Moore from Ole Miss. Jason Owe, Edge from Penn State. Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, linebacker, Notre Dame. And Tyson Campbell, cornerback, Georgia. So those are... My four best guesses as of today. I really wanted to throw in either Alabama interior offensive lineman Landon Dickerson or Oklahoma interior offensive lineman Creed Humphrey, but you said I can only do four. So 
I didn't give you the six, but did I? Hmm. The next one today comes from CG, who says, why do you think some player rankings differ so much among scouts and teams? Do they prioritize certain traits for each position differently, utilize different advanced metrics, value college production versus projecting to the NFL? Yes, all of those things are absolutely true. 32 teams, 32 completely different draft boards, and it comes down to scheme and culture fits and different valuations on traits and the stuff that you mentioned within your question. I look at our own group at the Draft Network where we have four full-time people working on scouting players. Myself, Jordan Reed, Dre Harris, and Kyle Krabs. And we all value things differently. And so what we do is we each evaluate all of the players and we grade them independently. And the average of our four grades gives us our consensus grade. So it kind of works in all of those different inherent biases that you have when scouting players, average it together and you get our consensus look. And if, you know, it's funny, like I think about some of the players that our group has big disagreements on and it's easy to see why there is so much variation within scouting amongst NFL teams. You're just going to value things differently. What you extrapolate from the tape is going to hit you differently. The way you marry the size and athleticism with the production and what you saw on tape, it's all going to hit you differently. And so that's why I think you see so much variance. The next one comes from Brad, and he says, We know the Bills have a wide receiver-centric offense, but there's no denying that a stud tight end, Kittle, Kelsey level, absolutely transforms an offense. Kyle Pitts is the guy in this draft, and I doubt he falls outside the top five or six picks. But hypothetically, if he fell... What's the most capital you would give up for him? I'd be willing to give up 30, a first in 2022, and maybe a second at some point. J.O. had a similar question. He said, would you give up all your 2021 draft picks straight up for Kyle Pitts, making him our only pick in this draft? So I wanted to read both of those questions, then respond with what I would do. And Brad puts out a scenario where it's, you know, what would I give up? At what point? would I say, okay, I'm comfortable giving up this for Kyle Pitts? And J.O. says, would you give up all your draft picks just to get Kyle Pitts this year? And I definitely would not give up all of the picks to go get Kyle Pitts. I would say that if it got to the point where we're only talking about giving up maybe a third or you know, packaging several day three picks to go get him, I'd think about it. But At the end of the day, I think what the Bills really need to do in this draft is come away with five or six players that you believe can be rostered for the next four seasons, fill a role, and maybe get a couple of starters. I think that's got to be the emphasis because you have to replenish this roster with multiple things. And it's not just getting one thing. That one thing's not going to make the difference like getting a starting cornerback two, a rotational defensive line that makes an impact, a developmental starter on the interior offensive line, and a weapon for the offense that you think can develop into a meaningful contributor. All of those things collectively mean more to me than just Kyle Pitts. So that's the way I look at it. I want a balanced and deep roster. And in order for the Bills to do that, a big portion of it 
has to be players on rookie deals. I don't think any team is ever one player away unless it's a quarterback. Think about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady changed everything, right? I think about a team like the Denver Broncos where I think they're loaded everywhere, but they have a bad quarterback in Drew Locke. To me, they're a quarterback away from being viewed as a completely different type of team that I think can have a completely different type of season if they were able to get a top 10 quarterback as opposed to (laughs) a loaded roster around Drew Locke. So I almost never believe you're one player away unless that one player is a quarterback. So I'll take the net of multiple draft picks as opposed to just getting Kyle Pitts, who I think the world of. I think he's a top five player in the class. I think he's going number four to Atlanta. So I don't think it's really a a thing that is going to be on the table for the Bills, but I think the philosophy behind it is what really matters in this question. RockAuto.com is a family business that's been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The RockAuto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand, specifications, and prices that you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why would you spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto.com. The next one comes from DK, who says, you've spoken in the past about certain players on the team being dogs and having that mentality. I feel our offense has those players, specifically Allen, Diggs, Feliciano, and Ford. I believe it's something the defense needs more of, that swagger. What defensive players, particularly edge and cornerback, have that to add to our defense in this year's draft? Love this question. So at edge, guys that I think are dogs, guys that bring that mentality, that edge to the table, Aziz Ojolari from Georgia. I mean, this dude's 249 pounds, but he plays big. And watch him exchange power with the Alabama and Auburn offensive linemen. I love it. Peyton Turner from Houston. He's a guy that gets after it on every single snap, is relentless in pursuit. Victor Dimukeji from Duke. Kind of a day three guy, but his effort is very, very consistent. And then Joseph Asai from Texas, probably a day two guy. I don't think he's a great scheme fit, but from a motor and urgency perspective, you have no questions about Osai giving it all he has on every play. At cornerback, Greg Newsom from Northwestern. I love him. Super competitive. Elijah Molden from Washington, kind of a slot corner. Um, I think he's the discount version of Buda Baker. Ambry Thomas from Michigan, third, fourth round guy, super competitive, very feisty. Thomas Graham from Oregon, smart player. He's aggressive and will get after it. And the last guy I'll mention is Avery Williamson from Boise State, who he's a, a smaller guy, but what he brings on special teams and his competitive spirit shines on every single time he's on the field. So those would be the guys that edge and corner that stand out to me with that dog mentality. 
DK had a second question that reads, usually future year's draft picks hold less value than the current. With the way the 2021 draft class's scouting has been stunted due to COVID and more players staying in school because of eligibility rules, do you believe this could or will cause GMs to place a higher than normal value on 2022 picks in potential trades? I think so. I think you have a good point here. I think only like 860 players this year actually signed with an agent, and normally that number is above 1,600. So you have a much smaller crop of players that you're pulling from. Now, I will say I think the top talent, the first four rounds, pretty similar as it would be in any year. Where you really take a hit is 5th, 6th, 7th UDFA-type players. You just don't have the same amount of them this year. So with that in mind, I do think that there's something to be said for 2022 picks, future year's picks being more valuable than usual because the the crop is just going to be much deeper and, and a lot more players to consider. They, they say next year's draft class is really like one and a half draft classes, and that's something to be mindful of. Now, here's the challenging part. Are teams really going to be that willing to wait on picks? Because teams typically aren't very patient. It sounds like a good idea. We recognize the value and why it's an even better idea than usual. But when it comes down to it and you're on the board and you have a chance to get a guy that you can get into your program, into your building now, are teams really going to pass on that chance for a promise in the future? I don't know. I don't know if it'll happen. So... I like where you're going with this, but I just don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of teams that are actually going to apply this with how they navigate trades. Edgar says, from time to time, I like to revisit Bill's draft history. Me too. Now that we need a pass rusher, I was thinking, what were your expectations for the 21st century high draft pass rushers we've had? Great hits as Aaron Schobel, great misses as Aaron Mabin and Eric Flowers, and meh players as Chris Kelsey, Ryan Denny, and Shaq Lawson. All right, so you guys know I love Aaron Schobel, one of my favorite Buffalo Bills of my lifetime. I was very excited when they got him. Aaron Maben, I questioned from the second they drafted that dude. People thought he would be the next Jason Taylor. No, he was like a pencil on the field. I, I, didn't, I never got behind Aaron Maben. Eric Flowers... I was a bit young. Like, I don't know that I had a true opinion of him. I just remember that they drafted him, and he was the first-round pick, and I was waiting for him to be good, and then he never played. So I don't know that I had a whole lot of opinions of him other than I was anxious to see him, and he he never really got a chance to play. Uh, And then you said Chris Kelsey, Ryan Denny, and Shaq Lawson. Chris Kelsey, a little bit disrespectful to, to lump him with Ryan Denny, I'd say. Kelsey played for a long time and was a starter. I don't think he was a high-impact player, but you knew what you were getting out of Kelsey. I always wanted more from him, but I respect the career that he had. Ryan Denny, I was never super high on when they drafted him. Uh, kind of a big, stiff guy. I just didn't think he had much playmaking upside. And I was when they got Shaq Lawson, I was swooning. I, I was really, really happy. He was one of my favorite players in that draft class, and I always wonder 
you know, if he wouldn't have had the shoulder stuff early on, if he never had the egregious coaching of Rex Ryan trying to play him as a stand-up outside linebacker, you got to be kidding me. Uh, you know, if he if he always had the right health and the right coaching, would he have been a more impactful player? I think so. But at the end of the day, Shaq Lawson's a good player. He's a $10 million a year player in the NFL. He's not bad. You just wish he was a more dynamic pass rusher. So I think it's fair to say that he didn't quite meet every expectation that was out there for him as a prospect, but he's a good football player that has earned the contract he was given. The next one today comes from Mike who says, I'm not sure if you've already stated before and I just missed it, but where does your Buffalo Bills fandom come from? How has the fandom changed over time, especially the longer you have been researching and talking about football? It's a good question. So I was born in Western New York. I I grew up on Grand Island. I lived there until I was 11 years old. And then my family moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I've been since 1996, late 1996. And, you know, this is home to me now. But um, those Western New York roots are definitely still part of me. I have a lot of family in, you know, North Tonawanda in the Buffalo area. And, um, you know, I, you don't shake it, right? You can, they, I've heard a phrase before, you can take the boy out of Buffalo, but you can't take the Buffalo out of the boy. And so uh, those 10, 11 years that I lived in Western New York, they were critical for me developing that love for the Buffalo Bills and being part of the community and you know how big of a deal it was and is, still is to my family. You know, I was born into it, just like I'm sure a lot of you guys are. As far as how my fandom has changed over time, I wouldn't say that it's changed all that much because I still love the Buffalo Bills. It's deeply rooted in my heart, right? Like I bleed red, white, and blue. I think about this football team all the time. You have to if you're going to talk about it every single day of the year on a podcast and it be worth pushing play on. So my love for the team hasn't changed. I think my mental approach to it has changed a lot where you know, I'm a lot more analytical. I see it through, I think, a pretty – clear lens of understanding football in general. Obviously, I you know, I do this for a living. I, I study college football. I study, study the NFL. I take that information and I apply it to the way I perceive the Bills. And I think I have a very broad scope of football and it helps me be a smarter Bills fan. But um, the love and you know that, uh, that passion and that joy and that hope, I st- it's, it's there. It's, it's never gone down. It's never gone up. It's always been, you know, full throttle pedal to the metal at all times. And, um, I love the football team probably even more because of the work that I do and how I apply that knowledge to being a fan and analyst of the Buffalo Bills. And I think I'm pretty objective. I think you've, you've heard me talk about a good era of Buffalo Bills football the Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean era. Like, this is this is great times. But if I was hosting Lockdown Bills throughout the Rex Ryan years or the Chan Gailey years or Dick Duran, like, you would hear a much different tone and attitude from me covering the Bills. But hopefully the Bills are a successful organization for a long, long time, and I never have to cover a bad football team. But when I do, I'll be honest about it, that I can promise you. The next one today comes from Vin, who says, 
Joe, as we are getting closer to the draft, being realistic, I think the best value in round one is probably cornerback. I also think that a defensive end like Peyton Turner from Houston looks like their kind of player. Do you think it's likely he won't be there at 61? Also, would you like that pick if they address corner at 30? I also would like to point out that slot receiver has a proven track record that you do not have to spend a high pick on that position. Perhaps a guy like Daz Newsom could be taken later. All right, so a lot of t- a lot of stuff to get into here. I think the best value in round one will be a cornerback. If the Bills come away with Patrick Sertain, J.C. Horn, Caleb Farley, Eric Stokes, or Greg Newsom, which, look, I don't know that it's going to happen. I don't think they're going to have the opportunity to pick any of those five. If they get any of those five, I will be elated. Now, is there a chance that they pick Tyson Campbell or Asante Samuel Jr.? Yes. I'll tell you this. If the Bills pick a corner at 30, I will give them the benefit of the doubt. Sean McDermott's track record with developing defensive backs is off the charts. And if he likes a player enough to pick at 30, and maybe it's not a player I love, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Because the need is absolutely critical. This team's cornerback room, not great. I'm not comfortable with it. They need more, and they need more long-term pieces in place. As for Peyton Turner, I do think there's a chance he could be there at 61. I don't think it's I don't think that's crazy at all. That's about the range I expect him to go. 50 to 75, somewhere in there. And then you mentioned the slot thing. You're not wrong. Cole Beasley, Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, Adam Humphreys. Chris Godwin was a two. He's a really good slot receiver. AJ Brown, kind of a slot, kind of more of a hybrid. I, Juju Smith-Schuster, he was a two. I hear you on that. I think this era of football is different, right? The NFL is is transitioning towards 11 and 10 personnel. 11 was the most common pass formation for every team in the NFL last year. And so I think the slot receiver and the valuation of it and the importance of it is growing. And so I think that changes the valuation. So I agree with you. Historically, you're not wrong. But I do think as the game has evolved and it becomes more important, the valuation for a slot slot wide receiver is going to you know, follow suit. The next one today comes from Sean who says, just finished the ultimate mock draft episode one and it's a great concept. Kudos to you and all of your colleagues. Thinking about the early part of the draft and Miami's involvement due to the infamous First rounder from Houston, it had me thinking about GMs and whether they gamble a bit during trades. Obviously, having an idea where the pick would be in general plays into it, but I wonder just how much they get into it. My question to you is if you think that when GMs are looking to trade an asset for a pick, they dig into the head coach, general manager, slash organization situation deeply and try and forecast who could be those teams willing to give a high pick as they internally believe they will be good next year, but some set of circumstances may lead to them crashing. Houston being the perfect example as they were a good team with a franchise quarterback and needed to protect him better, so they gave a first rounder obviously thinking it would be late. Did Miami look at the head coach and GM and think this success won't last and made the trade? Sean, I think you present a lot of good points within your question. 
And surely that's something that these teams consider. You know, how good is this team going to be? What type of first-round pick am I getting? Because, yeah, there's a difference. There's a major difference between a pick in the top five, 15, top 20, end of the first round. It's very different. But when you think about the Houston Texans and when they made that trade, I mean, this was a team that won four of the last five AFC South division titles. Like, they have been a good football team. They had Deshaun Watson. There was no reason to believe that the bottom would fall out like it did and they'd be giving up a top three pick. Because if that were the case, they wouldn't have done the deal. So, yes, it's definitely in consideration, but sometimes you just get lucky. And there's no way that anybody could have thought that a team that won four of the last five AFC South division titles with one of the most exciting young dynamic quarterbacks in the NFL would have had the bottom fallout like it did for the Houston Texans and the Miami Dolphins are big winners when we look at the deal in hindsight. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, MLB, and NHL seasons are in full swing. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV, and they have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything that you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds, and it's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code LOCKEDON. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The Ultimate Mock Draft 2021 presented by Locked On and Odyssey is happening now. Featuring analysis from NFL experts Michael Irvin, Jason Lockenfora, and Brian Baldinger, our local experts for every team making trades and picking the next stars of their team. Search the Ultimate Mock Draft 2021 on the new Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Odyssey is your audio home for all the sports, podcasts, music, and news that matter to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. The next one today comes from Brock, who says, My question is around your comment on running back prospects on the Bills Board podcast regarding pass blocking. I'm wondering if this is a trait that is usually a static trait for running backs entering the draft, or is it something that they can notably improve on in the NFL? Yes, backs can improve on pass protection in the NFL. There's no doubt about it. However, When you watch a guy in college pass block and they don't have a willingness to do it, they're passive, they just kind of throw a shoulder at guys, you don't see them square up, face up, sink their hips, get their hands on these guys and show a willingness to hit those blocks, that's where I get concerned. You can get better at diagnosing pressure and understanding where you need to help. You can get better at the mental side, but are you willing to step up and take on a defensive end that gets free? Are you willing to take on Devin White when he's shooting the A-gaps? It's that mentality and mindset. If you don't have that, if you're passive in pass protection, then I have a lot of doubt about how you're going to fare in the NFL. So you can get better, but I want to see that willingness on tape from the college level. And that's Cam Akers is a good example of that from Florida State. I thought he was a nightmare diagnosing pressure. But he was definitely willing. And because he was willing, I you know that eased my concern about him last year. 
Derek says, as I listen to the Bruce exclusive podcast, good choice, Derek. I listen to that every week, Thursdays and Fridays. I wonder how do you grade a team's draft picks? Do you look at the team's draft as a whole, or do you look at the first four or five rounds since they have a better chance to impact the roster? What do you look for? Second question, if you can have any two players in the draft, who will it be? It doesn't matter who it is. All right, so your first question is, how do I grade a team's draft picks? First of all, let me tell you something. I hate draft grades. I hate it because nobody's right. Nobody's right the day after the draft or a week after the draft. It takes three years for these guys to define what they are in the NFL. And so draft grades in general are something I don't really like. However, when you do the work, when you evaluate the class, especially to the level that I do, I mean, I've been working on these players since May of 2020. And because of that, I believe I've earned the right to have an opinion about how that team navigated the draft and collected talent. So I grade drafts based on the way I perceive the players. If I like the players you drafted and you got several of them and I can see the role that they can fill for your team, I'm going to like your draft. If I don't see the vision, if I don't think that you got great value, if I don't think that you got great fits, if you took too many risks, you know, there's all of those things go into it. So it's definitely completely subjective. How do I feel about it? Based on the work that I did evaluating the players, based on how I perceive your team and the needs and where it's at in its life cycle, how did you do with the resources you had at your disposal? That's how I grade it. But again, nobody's right, nobody's wrong until three years from now. The second part of your question was about if I can have any two players in the draft, who would it be? And you also said it doesn't matter who it is. So who am I taking? I'm taking Trevor Lawrence, and I'm taking Zach Wilson. Why? Not because I'm going to replace Josh Allen, but because those players have the most value in the draft. They're going to be pick one and pick two. So I'm going to take those players, and I'm going to trade them, and I'm going to get a lot of stuff back. So I definitely took a loophole with the question you asked, but I think those are the right choices. In the spirit of what I think you were trying to ask, which two players would I want for the Bills and like you had to keep them, I would say Kyle Pitts, the uh, offensive weapon from Florida. I don't I don't think it's fair to label him a tight end. I mean, he plays flexed out so often and such a good route runner. You project him favorably to the big slot role or you know, as an X receiver on the boundary. And then Patrick's retained the second because I think he's the highest floor cornerback. I think he's got a high ceiling, so don't get me wrong. I just think he's a very high floor cornerback, and goodness gracious, I really want to feel good about what the Bills have opposite of Tredavious White. So those would be the two players I would pick. And Patrick Sertain's not my number one corner. Caleb Farley is. But I'm factoring in the back stuff, right? Kind of makes me nervous. I don't really have any concerns about Patrick Sertain from a medical perspective, and I just think he's going to be a stud in the NFL. So those would be my two guys that I would uh, – come away with, I think, more in line with the direction you were going with the question. Alex says, I really like the pod where you outline your Bill-specific draft board. We all know Brandon Bean isn't afraid to trade up if a player that he loves starts to fall. My question for you is, at what point on your big board would you feel comfortable with the Bills trading away their second-round pick this year to move up for one of those players? Or would you prefer we hold on to our second-round pick no matter what? My thought is that pay Owusu-Koromoa 
or Farley would all be worth trading up for when you factor in their talent level and positional needs for the Bills. So on that podcast that I did regarding my Bills-specific big board, which I've received so much great feedback about, and uh, that makes me really happy because I love doing it, and it was a fun experiment for me to do. But if you guys remember, I gave my Bills-specific big board for pick 30, and it included 36 players, 36 different players that I would be satisfied if the Bills took them at pick 30. So with that in mind, I don't have a whole lot of interest in trading away my second-round pick to go get somebody when I know there's 36 different players that I'm satisfied with. I think the opportunity to get two good players trumps the idea of moving up. I need the volume component. I don't need too much volume. I don't need seven or eight picks, but I need five or six. And I'd like for those five or six to be as high as possible. And I think if you give up 61, you're really limiting your opportunity to dip into the best part of the draft and get the most talented players to add to your roster. So I wouldn't trade up. The next one today comes from Kyle, who says, Last week when you set the Bills draft board, I believe you had six corners in your top 36. I was just wondering where Trey White, as a prospect in 2017, would fit in among those corners. As much as I love Trey, there is no rule that he has to be the best corner on the team. As they say, iron sharpens iron. I wouldn't expect any of these guys to come in and be an all-pro or anything, but man, would it be nice to have a legit top corner duo locked up for the next three to four years if they are lucky enough to hit on one of those top guys. Also, who was your most fun prospect to evaluate? Not necessarily the best player or biggest sleeper or anything like that, but who was the guy that when you finished watching the film, you thought, holy, that was fun. I want to guess Tevin Jenkins. There is a different excitement in your voice when you start talking about him. Good questions here. So number one, where would Trey White slot into this corner class? And because I grade prospects on a numerical scale, I could tell you exactly where Trey White would have slotted into this cornerback class. I had him graded as an 87. That would make him CB2 this year. I have Caleb Farley as an 89. Patrick Sertain is an 86. So Trey White is an 87. J.C. Horn is an 85.5. Greg Newsom is an 84.5. Eric Stokes is an 83. And Asante Samuel Jr. is an 81. So Trey White would be CB2 for me in this year's class. And I remember thinking about the way I thought about Trey White when the Bills picked him. I remember it was, I think they got a solid double, a really good player. I never expected him to be as good as he is. I thought he'd be a very good starting corner in the NFL, and I thought it was a very safe double. Well, it winds up being a home run, but at the time I was thinking, well, you got a really solid starting cornerback, and you got a first-round pick the following year. So taking pick number 10 and turning it into a solid starting quarterback and an additional first-round pick I thought that was good utilization of pick 10. I thought that was a nice job of turning pick 10 into more than pick 10. And I think they have maximized on using those returns to truly look back at pick number 10 in 2017 and feeling like you really, I mean, you got a lot for it. You got Trey White, you got Josh Allen, you gave yourself two of the 
critical corner pieces for your roster. Literally probably the two most important Buffalo Bills as it is today and probably for a long time. So that's that's the way I remember thinking about that pick. Your second question was, who is my favorite player that I watched, the most fun prospect that I evaluated? You said not necessarily the best player, biggest sleeper, but the one that made me say, holy beep, that was fun. Your guess is correct. You said Tevin Jenkins, and you're not wrong. Tevin Jenkins, oh my goodness, like just watch him play. This dude, this dude is nasty. He's the baddest dude in the draft. Watch him play. He just puts people on their back left and right. He wants to snatch your soul. He wants to embarrass you in front of your family. He doesn't care if you have kids. He wants to bury you in the dirt. Even if it's pass blocking, he wants to dump you. I love it. I love that nasty, physical, aggressive demeanor that he plays a game with. I'll tell you three other guys. Three other guys that I watched your tape and, and I felt some type of way. Number one, outside of Tevin Jenkins, Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech. Said this a few times. I, I watched his tape back in May. One of the first guys I got to for this class. And I texted everybody that I know. Like, you know, the people I discuss football players with. And I'm like, yo, Caleb Farley is legit, legit. And obviously he didn't play in 2020, so there's nothing new to add to his film resume. But I just thought he was exceptional, especially considering that he transitioned over from wide receiver and how new he was to the position. And not only how good he played on the field, but how much Virginia Tech trusted him. They, they gave the guy a third of the field and said, this is yours. We need you to take it away. And he did. Teams would go after him, and it didn't matter. They couldn't get nothing on him. Dude is special on tape. Another guy, Jalen Waddle from Alabama. My goodness. You want to talk about a nightmare to defend? Absolute nightmare. Super dynamic. Route running, ball skills, hands, good with the ball in his hands. I mean, you hold your breath every time this guy touches the football because he's going to do something special. And you watch him, like, go watch the Missouri game this past year. That's the one that always pops in my head because he kept on getting behind the secondary. And Mac Jones, he just doesn't have a strong arm, so he couldn't really get it far enough to really make that speed matter. So he'd throw it up as far as he could. Jalen Waddle would have, like, five, seven steps on on the deepest guy on the defense. And he'd have to come back to the football because it was always underthrown. And Jalen Waddle was mossing dudes left and right. And he's like, not even that big. Loved it. Dude's a total alpha. I love the way he plays. Another guy is Justin Fields from Ohio State. The way that the Draft Network has organized our scouting department, we have regions. And my region is the ACC, the AAC, South Carolina, Tennessee, and LSU. That's where I focus all of my energy until we do cross-checks. So all year long, I'm watching teams in my region. And if you noticed, Ohio State's not in my region. So I didn't watch much Ohio State until after the year. So I go into this Justin Fields film study, you know, with a pretty open mind. Like, I didn't know what I was going to get. And I just start watching the tape, and you're like, goodness gracious, this guy has everything. Size, he's a really good athlete, got a rifle for an arm, beautiful deep ball, super accurate. I think he's the most accurate quarterback in the class. I love this tape. And so because I didn't have any preconceived notions going into it because I had been so focused on my region, getting eyes on Justin Fields through a very like clean lens, 
you know, having no expectation for what I was getting, I came blown away with the skill set. So those are my four guys, Tevin Jenkins, Caleb Farley, Justin Fields, and Jalen Waddell. The next one today comes from Scott, who says, in 2019, many were surprised how far DK Metcalf dropped. I saw some mock drafts having him go in the top 10. Who is this year's DK Metcalf? I paused there because anyone who was listening to the podcast back in 2019 knows exactly what I thought of DK Metcalf. I couldn't stop raving about the guy. I had him as like the number seven player on my board in 2019. I understand the concern was with the neck injury. Everyone was nervous about the neck injury and the foot. I digress, but he fell because of medicals. The guy this year is Caleb Farley. I still think Caleb Farley is going to go in the first round, probably in the top 25. But with two back surgeries since 2019 and ACL tear in 2017, would anybody be that surprised if he took a tumble down the board? Especially when you think about what Brandon Bean said yesterday about the medical information and just not having the same level of detail that you typically have. And plus, they're both like total physical freaks. So yeah, it's Caleb Farley. Caleb Farley is this year's DK Metcalf, but I'm not sure he falls all the way to the bottom of the second round. If if the Bills get Caleb Farley at 61, oh man, Whew. I won't be able to contain myself. All right, last one today is a fun one. It comes from Drew, who says, I really enjoyed today's podcast about the Bills' big board. I listened to it with my nine-year-old daughter, Lexi, and afterwards we both did our own Bills mock draft. Lexi is an aggressive drafter as she is a flag football player. Our two drafts are below. Can you tell us who did better? (laughs) See, now this is tough. Drew, you're putting me in a spot here, all right, because I like what Lexi did. She went with Kyle Pitts. She traded up and got Kyle Pitts, and then she got Shaka Tony from Penn State, Sage Sherratt, the wide receiver from Wake Forest, and Avery Williams, cornerback from Boise State. So out of that draft, I get you know a big-time playmaker in Kyle Pitts, which would be great for the offense, and Avery Williams, who is one of my favorite day three guys. I mean, just a, a crazy special teams pedigree with how he blocks kicks and feisty football player. I love him. Now, Dad's draft, Drew's draft is uh, completely the opposite. It's a trade back. So he trades back for Landon Dickerson, the center from Alabama, Asante Samuel Jr., cornerback Florida State at 61. At 80, Tylen Wallace, wide receiver, Oklahoma State. 123 is Cameron Sample, edge from Tulane. And then at 200 is Tadaryl Slayton, defensive tackle from Florida. So out of dad's draft, I get what I think is going to be a high-caliber starting center, a really good cornerback, a wide receiver that I think can be top four, a rotational defensive lineman in Cameron Sample that can play on the edge, And then to Daryl Slayton, who I think is a wonderful option as a developmental one technique that I think has starter traits. So while I love how aggressive Lexi was to go get a player in Kyle Pitts that she believes in, I have to go with dad's draft because I like the idea of getting more players that can fill out the roster and claim roles. And I like the players you got. So Lexi, I love how brave you were and aggressive to go get your guy. But for me, I'm going to side with dad's draft because um, I guess I like the safer approach and the players that he got to fill a number of roles. So that's 
that's why I went with Dad's draft. But uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and then, of course, using the mock draft machine on thedraftnetwork.com to send these over. All right, folks, that'll do it for us today. One more podcast left this week, and I think I'm going to spend the Friday show digging into the pre-draft visitors that the Bills have had. When I say pre-draft visitors, it's different this year. It's guys that they had on Zoom calls. And I also want to take a look at the pro days that Brandon Bean was at and figure out which players he was looking at. So Friday is going to be covering a bunch of prospects and seeing what trends we can figure out from the players that we know they had on Zoom calls and which players Brandon Bean went to personally get his eyes on. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.